great to be here this morning, and thanks for having me. Well, let's find out, let's review why we are here, shall we? So let's get our binders and turn them over. And look at the purpose first, and then our discipline. So the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God, so that, why? So that they may live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And then we have our disciplines. So, discipline one, she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel, right? You know, being in Wellspring all those years teaches me a lot, but one thing it's really taught me is that um, I must not listen to my heart. I must not follow my heart. Instead, I must shepherd my heart. Because, you know, I'm not always even totally aware of how forgetful I am. Um, and that how I'm prone to deceiving myself. And there are many things in my life that God chooses to use um, to teach me that truth, and one of them happens to be my furniture, and I'll tell you why. You know, as a general rule, I could tell you, yeah, I keep my house pretty clean, pretty picked up, and I'm satisfied it's pretty clean. That is until I'm sitting there on my sofa and the sun shines through the window at just the right angle on my furniture. And then I see all that dust. It didn't just, you know, magically appear. It was there all along, but I just didn't see it. I was content until it was revealed to me. Um, It was exposed. And so... That is how it's with me, how I can easily understand that um, I'd better get busy. And I'd better look and see what I'm thinking. What am I saying to myself? What are those things that I need to change? What are those things that I need to dust off or just get rid of altogether? So that's why I'm thankful for my windows, for furniture, for sunlight, for dust, because it reminds me that I have to saturate myself daily in his word. I need to expose my heart to his word. And I need to have his word, you know, going around in my head all the time so that those conversations that I have with myself, they're going to affect the way that I talk to myself and the way that I um, minister and talk to my household and then those beyond my household. Discipline three. You know, the fact, ladies, is the way that you and I do discipline one affects the way we do discipline two and discipline three, doesn't it? So let's look at discipline to the home. She ministers to those in her household with the heart for God in the gospel. You know, since God cares about the kind of people we are in Christ as we shepherd our hearts with his word, 
You know what, we need to be clear right now that we understand what the word household means. So when we speak about household, it refers to all households, right? Not just people who are married, not just people even with kids still um, at home. Because ministering to the household with a heart for God and the gospel, it's not just a quality that you turn on like a light switch. Um, if and when you get married someday or if and when you have children, right? So wherever you happen to be on the household, let's call it the household continuum, whether you have an empty nest or you don't have kids yet or you're not married or you have kids, wherever you are, you're living at home, living with roommates, wherever, we must make sure that we're wearing a heart of a gospel bearer that is never allowing a place for selfishness in the home, wherever that is. So let's talk about discipline three, the ministry, excuse me, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Christian, we belong to each other. We're one body, right? And <clears throat> we're members of each other. And we're called in Ephesians 5:25 to speak truth to one another. We're called to do that. And we find truth... You know, in his word. And so, I wonder if you're like me. Do you find that those biblical truths that you get to share with a sister in Christ are the ones that you've just been reading about maybe that day or that week, right? They're just fresh there. And um, being able to shepherd and build one another in the truth, in the word, isn't that so precious? Isn't that a joy? And it's our responsibility, too. And so I want to ask, okay, so how are you getting the most out of your Bible reading? How do you do that? Do you have any things that you think, oh, my goodness, this is great. This is what I want to share? Well, I'm going to share with you two strategies um, that are out there that help me to be fully involved and fully alert when I read my Bible. Because, you know, there are some days where I'm just chugging along. I'm really on. And then there are other days where I close my Bible and I, I walk away and it's like, um, I, I know I read. I know there are words on that page. But um, I just, I just don't know. And you, you can relate, can't you? So today I'm going to share some tools that can help you internalize and help give staying power what you read. And you you already know these tools. It's nothing new. You were probably taught these in elementary school. Okay? So um, one strategy is what you do before you read, and one strategy you do after you read. So I'm going to talk about what you do after you read first. And that one is called restating or summarizing the purpose. Does that sound familiar? Restating the text, said it wrong, restating the text. So how is this helpful? Simple, 
Okay, so like most of you, I'm in four places in my Bible reading every day. And so after each section, all I do is I restate what did I just read. And I ask myself, I say, okay, self, Lori, what did you just learn about what you read? Could you share that with someone today? And so asking myself those questions, because I'm not going to let myself get up until I answer those questions, that's summarizing what it helps me do is pay attention, because I have to answer that question. And then I need to know, can I share that with myself? Can I share that with my household and with my sisters in Christ? Okay, that's the first one. Now I'm going to tell you about the second one. And the second one you do before you read, and that one is called setting the purpose for reading. And that's simple, too. It means that I'm formulating and I'm articulating the reason that I'm in the text. Now, we all know the biggie, right? The big reason why we're in the Word of God, we already know that. Why? We're in the Word of God to get the God of the Word. That's the big reason. That's why we're in the Word every day, because we want to get to know Him. Okay, so having this right here in the forefront of my mind, it keeps me alert during those passages that I might be tempted to think are a little dry. You know the ones like the genealogies or maybe regulations for leprosy, you know. But you know, it also, it also keeps me alert um, and it helps me navigate through those passages where I mean, every word is a mine, right? A, a rich gold mine. And you're reading a whole chapter, and well, you just can't even take it all in because there's so much. You know what I'm talking about. So it also helps you navigate those. See, if I set the purpose for reading, um, if I find a theme, like let's just say I'm looking for the glory of God, which I am. That's what I'm doing. Um, so while I'm reading... I'm alert, and when I see it, I perk up, and it helps me go, oh, okay, it's a hook. It helps me pay attention to that, and I'm really alert to my reading. I get excited about it, and I'm delighted then to notice that common thread that is weaving through my whole reading plan, not only today, but also what I read yesterday and the week before, and so, ladies, we're hoping, if you're not already doing this, that you'll give it a try. You'll give it a try. And so to help you do that, we've put together um, some theme suggestions, and you got them on a handout this morning. All the instructions are written there, along with some suggested themes. And so we're asking you to please read it thoroughly. Um, and maybe even talk about it in your discussion group after um, I get finished. Listen, there's no pressure. No pressure here. We just want you to prayerfully consider doing it. And you choose a theme. So whether choosing a theme is um, something you can do right now, let me help you with this. It's just a tool. There are no rules. We want you to just make it your own. So you can do as little as what I just said. You pick your theme and you read and when you see it, aha. Think about it. All right, that's simple. You can take it a step further, and when you see it, you just check mark or write a little note or something in your margin, okay? You can even take it a step 
further, and you can write it in a journal. We have some back there for you if you if you want some even. Because adding that extra layer of involvement, it's been proven it does help you um, retain that information. So there you have it. Um, we hope that you'll give it a try and that will help you, um, just help you remember why you're in the Word. Well, let's set a purpose for today's lesson, okay? Since we just talked about that. The purpose for today's lesson for the survey is to find nine categories that help us seek God's heart in Scripture for the household. So it's all about D2 today. Okay, this lesson is a survey lesson. You know, we want to gain the whole sense of God's heart. We're not just going to stay in one passage. We want to make sure, ladies, that our thinking it's aligned with God's thinking. That's the purpose. That's why we're here. Okay, we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. We're going to power walk through a lot of scripture from Old Testament to New Testament and back. But ladies, we don't want to power walk right through those really familiar verses. You know, the ones you've read and you know. We want to stop and we want to make sure that as we look at them, that we're checking out God's heart for the household. And that's what we'll be doing today. Because we want to be reminded in an hour from now. We want to walk away going, wow, I was reminded and I was encouraged. What was I reminded and encouraged about? To persevere. To what? To the call and the privilege, ladies of cultivating Christ-honoring households. Okay, that's what we're going to do today. So before we do that, we better pray, shouldn't we? Let's ask God's help. Heavenly Father, there is such rich treasure in what we're going to look at today. There's a lot. And Father, I pray that you speak as you always faithfully do to each one of us and just tap us on the shoulders when this is something huge that we need to tackle right now and the rest of it lord help us to tuck it away and to pull it out and to um, just minister to ourselves to share this with ourselves today tomorrow next year lord please we need your help and we thank you for it in your name amen so let's start with number one on your outline so today we're going to begin by looking at Mosaic Law, and we're in Exodus 20. Now, we're probably really familiar with the Ten Commandments, but right now we're going to focus on what God is revealing about the connection between the heart and the household. So by the time we get to um, verse 12 in Exodus 20, we're right in the middle of those Ten Commandments. So let's look at Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Okay, so what's the first human relationship that God deals with? You see it? It's the parent-child relationship. Okay, next, we're going to move on um, to God's concern for marriage and for the husband-wife household relationships. Verse 14, 
you shall not commit adultery. And then we're going to see God's concern for the neighbor's household. If we look at Exodus 20:17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, that's pretty specific, don't you think? What are we to focus on, ladies? We're to focus on being content with our own households. Here's the key point. God wants his children to think rightly about the household and everything and everyone in or associated with that household. No exceptions. Wow. Okay, Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10. Now, you remember that Israel is not allowed to go in the promised land. They've been forced to wander for 40 years in the wilderness because of their sinful, unbelieving, grumbling hearts. Now that generation, they've died off. And now Moses has the next generation on the plains of Moab. And we're at the end of that 40-year period. Okay, and He's giving them a heavy dose of instruction one more time before they go in the promised land. All right, now we're going to look at the disciplines here. And we're very familiar with this passage, too. Um, only give heed to yourself, verse 9. And keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. That's discipline one. Yes. All right, shepherd your heart. Why? So they don't forget. Remember what forgetters we are? Discipline your heart so they don't, you don't forget. And what are you supposed to do instead of forgetting? Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So that's discipline too. And verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach them to their children. Fear, discipline one, teach, discipline two. See, God's intent early on with Israel is, look, Israel, you better take care of your heart and you better help your family. Let's go on to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And let's again notice the disciplines. Hear, O Israel, verse 4. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There it is, D1. Everything, he's saying, everything you are in your inner being needs to be given over in love to the Lord. Let's keep going. Let's notice how God connects his love for him with his word. See, because you can't love God apart from his word informing that love. 
All right, let's see what he says next, and let's notice how specific he gets. And Jenna, did you just read these to us? Perfect. So we're going to go really, really fast. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall teach them, you shall talk of them when you sit down, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as signs on your hand, and you sh and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. So here again we see how inseparable discipline one and discipline two are. They're linked. God is instructing Israel to saturate their hearts and their homes with the treasure of God's word. Let's look at Deuteronomy 7. Verses 1 through 5. And ladies, I'm zipping right along. I apologize if you cannot keep up with writing. Just try to listen, and perhaps you can listen to the audio later. So Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. We're going to see another requirement that God places on the older generation. In verses 1 through 3, the Israelites are told that when they enter the promised land, what are they supposed to do? Destroy the inhabitants totally make no treaty with them show them no mercy see they're also supposed to destroy okay so they're supposed to destroy the inhabitants and their idolatry all of it don't leave a speck let's look at verse three furthermore you shall not intermarry with them you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. See, God is saying, don't even let those kind of mixed households begin. Don't do it. Look at verse 4. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. See, they pull the heart away from Yahweh. So I want you to please put a little asterisk right there by that verse on your outline because we are going to see it played out later in the history of Israel. All right, ladies, now let's notice the dire consequences of allowing sons and daughters to intermarry with those of another God. Now in verse 4b, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. So here's the key point. If you love the Lord your God and his word is on your heart, you will then take it into the home. The passage also says it's true the other way around. The household will impact your heart. It will. You get the wrong kind of household and it can lead your heart astray. All right, on to Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. And here the psalmist is expressing the obligation that one generation has to tell the next generation about the Lord. It's a good example of the inseparable connection between how I shepherd my heart and the impact that my heart shepherding makes on the next generation. And as I read it, just make a note, put your fingers up or something, of how many generations are talked about here. All right, Psalm 78. 
Verse 1, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them to their children, but will tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works, which he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come may know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. How cool is that? Right? We have, what, the ancestors, the people in that current generation, the (coughs) children yet to be born, and then their children. So that's four generations. Let's look at verse 7, what they're supposed to teach, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget. There, there's a great theme right there, forgetting. Um, the works of God, but keep his commandments. And look at verse 8. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Yikes, how about you, ladies? How about in years to come, how would you like someone to say about us? Don't follow your grandma's example because she was not faithful to God. I know. Sad face, right? Yuck. Look at how God describes their hearts, ladies. Verse 8. Stubborn, rebellious, unprepared, and unfaithful. That's something to think about. See, that generation failed in discipline one big time, didn't they? And what were the consequences? They quickly forgot about God, they became disloyal to God. See, we must not power walk past this passage because even though it addresses Israel, the principle applies to us believers today. We need to know, ladies, God cares about our hearts and the impact that our heart shepherding has on the next generation. See, we're not to separate his concern for the, for our hearts and his concern for our homes. We're all responsible to declare those truths to ourselves and then to the next generation. We are. Just think about the impact and the influence that we can have on kids. Those kids in our homes, in our family, our extended family, the kids we invest in here at church, the kids in your small group, a friend's kids. See, we're all called to the important privilege, the important responsibility of doing that, all of us. All right, let's go to the New Testament now. Um, We're going to go to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Ephesians 6. We're going to see how God addresses the inseparable connection 
um, between the heart and the home. And here we read a repeat of the fifth commandment that is brought under the authority of Jesus' regulations for the church. Now, these verses are about the parent-child relationship from two different perspectives. So let's see what they are. Verses 1 through 3 are from the child's perspective. It says, Children, honor your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you, and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Okay, now we have verse 4, and that's from the father's perspective. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right, let's notice, right, Paul is teaching both children and the parents because that's the way God is honored in the household. Here's another way you could say it. Children, you guys are responsible to shepherd your own hearts in such a way that you are able to honor and respect your parents. And parents, you are responsible to shepherd your own hearts in such a way that you, look at verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's the key point. God is demonstrating that even in the New Testament, household relationships matter to him. Now don't turn there, but next on your outline is 1 Timothy 3. 4 and 5, dealing with elder qualifications. We've been learning all about this from Scott's sermons. But I want to remind us that this is where Paul instructs a man, that a man needs to be able to be effective in his own home as a manager and a leader. Do you remember why? Because that's the testing ground, isn't it? For determining if he's able to be qualified as an elder in the church. And we're also going to be, after Sunday, very familiar, if we're not already, with Titus 2, 3 through 5. Um, Again, I'll just quickly read it to you if you don't want to turn there. Uh, But it says, well, as I read it, let's notice the household relationships. That's what we're going to focus on. It says, older women likewise. What are we supposed to be? Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, but teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Listen, here it goes. So the word of God is not dishonored. What's the main concern? Do you see it? The word of God. Listen, ladies, here's the key point. A woman's faithfulness in her home is of great significance to the gospel because The way a woman shepherds her heart and her home impacts, so this is so convicting, ladies, it impacts the way others speak about God's word. 
Well, back we go to the Old Testament. We're going to look at number two on your outline, two Old Testament women who grabbed, who grasped God's heart for the gospel. Ruth's life, sweet Ruth. Her life took place at a time of the judges before there was uh, a king in Israel. Remember um, the book of Judges? It's one book right before uh, Ruth, how it ends. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's Judges 21-25. So sadly, because there was no submission to authority of God, people, even the priests, did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And thus, what happened? Sin ran rampant. And in the midst of this very dark period of history, we get a treat. Ruth, a very virtuous woman. You may remember she's from Moab. And you may remember that she lives in troubled times. And she faces her own terrible grief. What happened to her? Well, her husband is dead. Her brother-in-law is dead. And her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi... She's from Bethlehem, Naomi is, and she decides to go back to Bethlehem because the famine in Israel is over. But before Naomi leaves, she encourages her two daughters-in-law. She says, stay, stay here in Moab with your own people, your own language, and your own culture because who knows, girls, you might even find a husband of your own again and have children. So, one daughter-in-law, Orpah, she does it. She listens to her mother-in-law's counsel. And we never hear from her again. But Ruth, what does she do? She clings to her mother-in-law. All her famous words, look at Ruth 1, 16 and 17. She says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And it really mattered to them where they were buried, ladies. And she says, where you die, I'm going to die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts. Death is pretty bad, right? And worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And so Naomi, okay, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi said no more. Okay, wow. Let's get the impact of Ruth's decision. Because Ruth was demonstrating something. She was demonstrating her love for God. How? How was she doing that? By caring for her household right? How? Here's how she did it. By loving her widowed mother-in-law and ladies, that same woman who by her own admission was a very bitter woman. In Ruth 1, 19 through 20, Ruth and Naomi get to Bethlehem and all the ladies come running around to greet them and they go, wait a minute, is this Naomi? And Naomi she has her claws out, right? She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And what does that mean? Bitter. And then she goes on accusing God. He has dealt bitterly with me. And on and on and on. And they're going, sorry I asked, right? Have a good day. You know, I mean, it's like, 
the, the fangs are out. But this woman, that's the one Ruth chooses to love. Isn't that great? She's a proud, bitter woman, and that's the family Ruth loves. And even though Ruth had no guarantees that she would ever marry or have children, her love for God, that's the key, right? It wasn't anything in Naomi, but her love for God drove her to love her household. Now we know how happy that story ends, don't we? All right, the next reference, there are two of them. We're not going to turn there to uh, Second Kings and Chronicles. Um, but if you don't already know her, I want to introduce you to a heroine named Jehoshaphat. Sometimes she's also known as Jehoshabeth. Now her story is in two places, Second Chronicles and Second Kings, and we're going to talk about her real soon. So stay tuned. But for right now, we just need to know she is a God-fearing aunt who grasps God's heart for the household and for the family. She risks her own life. And why? Well, we're not going to talk about it now, so you have to stay tuned. Setting the purpose there. <laughs> um, stay tuned because we're going to find out what a heroine she is. So we just saw two wonderful role models, Ruth and Jehoshaphat. But now we're going to meet some not-so-wonderful role models. So fasten your seatbelt. Here we go to number three. We're going to talk about Eli, number three on your outline. We're going to talk about Eli. Now, you may remember Eli, the priest in Shiloh, from the lesson we all had on Hannah. Remember, he had two sons. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see the huge heart problem that um, Eli's two sons had. Let's look at verse 12. Okay, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Beginning of verse 13. And they did not know the custom of the priests with the people. Okay, so now these verses go on to tell us how worthless these men were as priests. See, when a worshiper came to offer their sacrifices to the Lord, these priests helped themselves to whatever they wanted. We also need to know that the priest had the duty to burn the fat on the altar as an offering to the Lord, and that's from Leviticus 3, 16. But these two bullies made their servants do their dirty work and take that fat by force. Look at verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. Of course, ladies, the worshiper knew, that's not right, that's wrong. And so if he protested, if the man said, Well, they must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as, as you desire. You know what the servant would say? Nope, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. And you know, that fat, that was strictly forbidden for human consumption. And everyone who ate it was to be expelled from the people. But the priests, they didn't care. They were going to eat that fat now, adding is that that's not worth it, not bad enough. Adding to that is verse 22. It says that they lay with women. 
Now their aged father, Eli, he hears about all that his sons are doing. How could he not hear? And he confronts them. But ladies, he throws them a softball. Let's see. Verses 23 and 24. He said to them, Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. See, the sons wouldn't listen to Eli, their father. But... You know who was held responsible for that? Eli. Eli was held responsible by God. And God confronts him in verse 20. He says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded my dwelling, in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Right, verse 29. That's the key verse. Look at it again. Here's the heart-wrenching question. Why do you honor your sons above me? See, Eli is letting his sons get away with it. Yeah, he did speak to them. To his defense, he did speak to them. He says, guys, this is terrible. You shouldn't be doing this. But ladies, that wasn't enough. He didn't make them stop, and he didn't remove them from the priesthood from serving the Lord. See, Eli is a sad example of a father, of a priest, a spiritual leader, for whom it was more important to please his two sons than to please the Lord. And here's the key point. I must not set my household so high that I would honor my family above God. I must not do that. I also must not forget that the impact, I'm sorry, I must not forget that what I do with my heart impacts the household. That's discipline one, impacting discipline two. And what I do with my household impacts a lot of other believers, doesn't it? I mean, look at all of Israel that was impacted. And that's discipline two, impacting discipline three. It impacts it for good, yes, and bad. You need to know that. Oh, dear. Sorry, I got to drag us along. We got to keep going. Solomon. All right. He's also, he also neglected discipline one. And he also brought great pain to his household and the nation. Let's look at 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. And as we read these verses, let's pay special attention to the references on the heart. 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, among them the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite and Ammonite and Edomite and Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to them, had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after other gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. 
He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart, hope you're noticing all the references to heart, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. See, Lady Solomon held fast, didn't he, to his loves. Remember that little asterisk I asked you to put back in Deuteronomy 7.3? What was the result? His wives turned his heart away from Yahweh after other gods. Look at verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Ladies, that is nine references to the heart in verses, I'm sorry, yeah, six references to the heart in verses 1 through 4 and verse 9, six times. So after Solomon died, what happened? You remember, right? The kingdom is divided into two parts. So you have the ten tribes in the north, known as Israel, and then you have the two tribes in the south, known as Judah. So before we talk about Athaliah, who's next on your outline, let's learn about her parents first. You may remember her dad and her mom, infamous rulers in Israel. Her dad, King Ahab, he took for his wife Jezebel. Jezebel is not a worshiper of Yahweh. And you know, Ahab knew full well God's concern for the household. It meant, you know, it's forbidden to marry foreign wives. Remember that asterisk again. But Ahab was already so used to idolatry, ladies, he didn't even flinch when he decided to take a foreign idol-worshipping princess as his wife. As his wife. And what do you remember about Jezebel? Hey, you better not get in her way, right? Stay clear, because she's a woman who has murder on her heart. Remember, she's the one who tried to eradicate worship of God in all of Israel by killing the prophets. You may remember that she's also the one who murdered Nabal for his vineyard. Well, what kind of uh, lovely offspring did these two wicked parents spawn? Let's find out. They had a daughter named Athaliah. And when she was grown, they gave Athaliah in marriage to Jehoram, who was king of the southern kingdom. Okay, so how would you like to have uh, in-laws as, you know, as Jehoram did? Let's find out the kind of guy Jehoram was. Okay, don't turn there, but I'm going to read 2 Kings 8.27. I want you to notice the influence that Jezebel and Ahab had on Jehoram. In 2 Kings 8.27, it says, He walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab had done because he was son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Okay, there's a lot of people here, so just a really quick recap. So you have Queen Jezebel and King Ahab. They marry Northern Kingdom, and they have Athaliah, right? Athaliah grows up. They gave her in marriage to Jehoram, southern kingdom. So now Athaliah is queen of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, so Athaliah and Jehoram have a son, and his name is Ahaziah. He grows up. He becomes king of Judah. 
Ahaziah, he only reigns one year, and he's killed. And what does his dear mother, Athaliah, do upon hearing the news that her son is killed? Let's turn to 2 Kings 1, uh, 11, 1 to 3, and find out. 2 Kings 11. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Okay, so did you get that? After Athaliah, after Ahaziah is killed, his mother, Athaliah, is so zealous to rule as queen mother and control Judah, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Okay, that's her grandchildren, ladies. And her attempts to purge the royal house of Judah brought the dynasty of David to the brink of destruction, of extinction. Ta-da-da! And here comes the heroine. Remember? Jehosheba. Okay, let's talk about her in 2 Kings and find out what she did. Mm-hmm. 2 Kings 11, verse 2. But Jehosheba, the daughter of Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in a bedroom. Can you picture that? So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was reigning over Israel. All right, we just read the accounts of two really different women. Now, they're related by marriage. We have one, that wretched grandmother, Athaliah, who murdered her own grandchildren. And then we have the other, the God-fearing Aunt Jehosheba who will risk her own life in order to save her nephew from his grandmother's murderous tyranny, and who, in thus doing, Lady spares the Davidic Davidic lineage. Now, I can't help but think this would make a hugely wonderful film, right? A blockbuster, edge-of-your-seat thriller. But you know, there's much more than murder and intrigue here. And so I want to be sure we stop and apply this to our lives. And here's the key point. We, ladies, need to be on guard for our own hearts and our own households. For we know that apart from rigorous heart shepherding, our own hearts, what happens to them? They can quickly become hardened, self-grasping, self-serving, even murderous, yes, As we quickly get angry and frustrated with anyone or everyone who gets in the way in our homes as ruling as queen mother, thinking, you know what, it's my home, my house to my rule, my house, my way. Watch out. It happens before you know it. You're mad at somebody for doing something in your home. You have to remember whose home it is, right? We can have that same sinful heart. That's why we must guard our hearts. We must lay them bare before God's word, right? We must plead. Plead for our heart. 
that matches God's heart for our household. So that as we carry that burden, we have that same concern that he does. You know, the fact is we will impact our homes, ladies. That's the fact. The question is, how? That's the question. Well, let's move on to number four, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. So context-wise, we're back on the plains of Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. And this is um, 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt, okay, long before the kings. So we're going to read Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. We're going to find out what Moses is warning about. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and households full of good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which, by the way, you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which uh -uh, you did not plant and you eat and are satisfied. Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. How would you paraphrase what we just learned? Here's a reading strategy, remember? How would you say it? When things are comfortable. Uh-huh. Yeah. When things are good, things are comfortable, things are cushy, things are great. Watch out. When you're experiencing abundance and ease, you must be careful. What, what must you be careful of? Don't forget God, because he's the one who rescued you from slavery. Yes, we are rescued from slavery to sin. All right, let's move two chapters over, Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20. 10 says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And ladies, the next verses are full of caution and heart warning and heart shepherding. So let's look at them. Beware, again, beware. You do not forget God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. You see the danger, right? What happens to a heart not properly guarded? Look at Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when you're in a what we might call blessed situation and things are going well, okay, that's the time, ladies, we've got to be concerned. We must. Because what does God say is going to happen to us in those times? We're going to forget. We're going to forget him. And how do you know you're going to forget him? How do you know that's even happening? Look, you're not obeying. Why? Well, because you're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Look at 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and my strength of my and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. See, Christian, we must understand that the house, the very place of blessing, can be the exact same place that forgets the blessing giver. 
But thankfully, here's the good news, in Christ, the household can become a platform for impacting everyone else in the household with the gospel. And that's why our households need to hear us talking often about how grateful we are for God's provision. But I'm not talking about the provision of stuff. I'm talking about the provision of treasuring, treasuring our greatest treasure. What is that? The gospel, right? It's the gospel. It's us belonging to God. Yay! Let's look at moving on to number five, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. Well, we have four references here on the outline, and we're not going to turn to the first two. But I quickly want to mention Cornelius, and he's in Acts 10. You see, sometimes we get to see that when one heart is changed for Christ, an entire household is changed. Praise God. And that's what happens with Cornelius. Now, he's already a believer. He's a Gentile believer, and he assembles his friends and his family because Peter is there, and he wants them to hear what Peter has to say. So here's the key point. An entire household was impacted because one man was faithful, and he brought the gospel and his household together. So now let's turn to find out about Lydia. Uh, her story is in Acts 16. Let's turn there if you'd like. Um, verse 11, let me tell you some background. Um, Paul and Silas are in Philippi. It's the Sabbath. And as their custom was, when there's no synagogue, they would go to the river and they'd find a place of prayer, and there they'd sit down. And that's what they did. They sat down and they began to talk to the women. Uh, who were gathered there. In verse 14, we find out about Lydia. She was one of the women from the city of Thyatira, and she is a dealer in purple cloth. And we find out she also is a worshiper of God. And the Lord opens her heart to respond to Paul's message. And what happened as a result? Lydia had her heart opened. And what happened as a result of that? Her household also experienced that. It made a huge impact. They heard the gospel. They believed. They're all baptized. An entire household was changed and grew and became faithful to the Lord as Lydia brought the gospel and her household together. And just a few verses over, you remember the Philippian jailer? We're not going to have time to really remember him because of time, but you remember the story, the chains, the dungeon, the earthquake, the almost killing himself, the, the jailer, and Paul tells him the gospel. And instead of getting death, he gets eternal life, and he brings the gospel and his household together. One man gets saved, one person gets saved, and it impacts the whole household. Hooray! <laughs> but this is very important, we understand. That's God's choice, if God chooses to do it that way, right? It's up to God. If he saves the whole household, but whether he does that or not, the whole household can be influenced, right? It can be impacted by one believer. It can have impact beyond words. 
See, God desires to use us in that same way. He desires for us to bring the gospel and our households together. He does. Now, how do we do that effectively? I'm sure you're already telling yourself the answer. First and foremost, what must we be doing every day? You got it. We've got to be marinating in the gospel, right? We must know it. We must live it. We must become the hands and feet of Christ to our households. Let's move on to number six. Because, ladies, if God thinks that way about the household, and he exhorts his people from the Old Testament to the New Testament to think that way, should it surprise us that our households are under attack? Should it? No. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, I'll read it for you quickly. It says, while you're turning there, but realize this, that the days, the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's a pretty awful list, don't you think? What are we told to do? Avoid, right, such men as these. Okay, why? For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Let's talk about these ungodly men. What do they do, ladies? They enter into households and captivate weak women. And what do these weak women look like? Do you ever wonder, what, what's a weak woman? Well, let's find out. The answer is in verse 6. They're weighed down by sins and carried away by various lusts. See, they're perfect prey for these false teachers. because, And they also, what, what they're soaking in everything that these false teachers say to them. Well, why did they do that? You know, how did the women get that way? Do you see it? See, they're not equipped well to deal with their sin and their sinful desires. Please listen. Okay, this is really important. They aren't equipped well with the gospel. They don't know how to deal with those sinful desires. Put another way, they don't know how the gospel addresses or dethrones, we could say, their impulses, their desires, and can change them for godly desires. And they're always learning, ladies, something, right? But it's not hard shepherding to the word of God to get the God of the word. So they're vulnerable to attack. And we must observe how does the attack get in the household in the first place? I mean, does it have to break in? Does it have to um, barge through the doors? No, 
Do you see it? It just enters, right? The door's open, the welcome mat is out. Come on in, just wipe your feet before you come on in. Come on in. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves, we must. What influences are we welcoming? Come on in, into our homes. Open door, welcome that out. What are we exposing ourselves to? I'm talking blogs, books, entertainment, fill in the blank, ladies. You know we must be vigilant because attacks against the Christian household, they often come disguised, don't they? Right? They look benign and harmless and even appealing. They appeal to something in us. So if you're not sure, please ask your husband, ask your dad, ask your small group leader to help you scrutinize your choices. Will you do that? Think about it. And remember, you know, we just don't have to guard what we keep out. But remember Jacob's talk, you need to guard what you keep in. Very important. That's why the best protection is to be in the Word every day. That's why we always talk about discipline one first. See, our greatest source of joy shouldn't be in what? Other men's teaching anyway. It should be in God. It should come from the Lord. Psalm 1611, that's why you have it there. Uh, it says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. Being disciplined in the disciplines helps us avoid being weak women. Helps us have our treasure where it needs to be. See, we're vulnerable, ladies, to believing lies. We are drinking in the Kool-Aid that the world gives us. And here's the sad part, passing it on to those in our households. But I have good news. When we spend time in God's word, worshiping and basking in it, remember Psalm 1611, we're going to experience abundant joy and pleasures as we unfold the riches of God's grace. We are. We're going to move on to number seven. Women, we're all women. We identify as women here in this room. No matter if you're a single woman, kids, no kids, aunt, whatever, granddaughter. But what's it more important to identify as? Our identity must be first and foremost in Christ. Everything else must fall under that identity. Please stop and make sure you're thinking rightly about that as well. Because, you know, there will be times when you have to do what's right rather than making someone in your home happy, right? Nevertheless, you must do what's right. Remember how negatively it was spoken of with Eli. You must honor, you must not honor anyone in your household above honoring the Lord. In Matthew 10, 34 through 39, Jesus said, do not think I came to bring peace, right? But a sword, get this, later on he says, one's enemies will be in your household. See, sometimes we see in the New Testament, one believer brings his household to Christ and they all believe, praise God. But 
Jesus is teaching that's not always the case. When we bring the gospel to our household, sometimes even our family members become our enemies. John MacArthur says, though the ultimate end of the gospel is peace with God, the immediate result of the gospel is frequently conflict. And if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, the believer must follow Christ and not his family, even when, while, she stays in that family, seeking to display the changes Christ made in her as she loves and serves and forgives. I need to keep reminding myself of my identity. It's in Christ and in no one and nothing else. And you have um, a little graph or a little um, clip art on your sheet about that because another thing that can happen as you uh, are living your life, you may forget that you are a sister in Christ, that Christ is your identity, and you may tend to let your family history creep into the way you behave. And that's why we have that on there. Sometimes you go, well, I'm just not a loving person. I'm just not affectionate. My family just never did that. Or, you know, we're half Irish, so yeah, we have a temper. You know, that should never be your excuse for acting the way you act. You need to remember your identity is in Christ, and that's what is printed on there for you. Let's look on to number eight. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the household. You know, we can't talk about household without talking about marriage, and we're going to be hearing a lot about marriage in the next several weeks. You have a passage there on Ephesians. I'd like you to look at that later do you know, in our rebellious society that we live in with a culture that celebrates the redefinition of marriage, we must know, you must be able to defend marriage biblically. Not, okay, what do I think about marriage, but what does Christ, what does God say about marriage? Because marriage is a beautiful picture of submission. And you're going to learn about that later. Married or not, we must treasure and support and build up marriage by the way we think about marriage and the way we respond to marriage. See, your husband is your leader if you're married. And what, no matter what kind of leader he is, ladies, you can submit to him. You can. You can. Because Christ... Your leader is trustworthy. That's why you can do it. He's always trustworthy, and he's always sovereign, and he's always good. That's where our confidence lies, and that's what we can encourage each other with, shall we? You have at the end there, number nine, a New Testament model of marriage. If you don't know Priscilla and Aquila, get to know them. They were a dynamic duo. When you think of them, don't think of them as off on their own, doing their own thing. But don't think of them either as being glued to the hip. But what they did is they served together, and they were able to impact Apollos and help him complete his view of Christ, who then was able to go out and impact others. Impactful marriages. Isn't that what we want in our church today? You've got to know about marriage. You've got to get a grasp on that.
So with that, ladies, I want to close this in prayer. Thank you. Take off those walking shoes. We're done. Power walking through. Thank you for sticking with me, and let's pray, and then pray, and we'll get you to your discussion groups. Oh, Heavenly Father, while well, we learned so much today, Lord, so much that is on your heart for the household. Lord, we've seen that a woman who places a priority on the spiritual influence of her household with her heart for the gospel can have a huge impact wherever she goes. There's just no room in scripture to wriggle around that, Lord. Thank you for reminding us today that it's our responsibility. So please help us, Lord, to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our households. Help us, Lord, where we need to guard and protect our hearts and our households. Lord, help us to root out false thinking or any thinking Lord, that's devoid of the gospel that could come in. Lord, that could deceive us, that could poison our families. We beg you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.